0: welcome to this week's Geraldine Jameson interview. My guest today is the well-known Irish author Brian Keenan, whose works include the autobiographical book entitled An Evil Cradling, an account of the four and a half years he spent as a hostage in Beirut. Well Brian, a very warm welcome to the programme.
1: Oh, it's great to be here.
0: Now, on the morning of the 11th of April 1986, you were kidnapped by Islamic Jihad. After spending two months in isolation, you were moved to a cell shared by the British journalist John McCarthy. Blindfolded throughout and chained hand and feet, except when taken very briefly out of solitary, this is an extraordinary testimony of both imprisonment and survival. First of all, what on God's earth had tempted you to take up a teaching position at the American University of Beirut in the Lebanon in the mid 80s 1980s it was to those of us you see who have never been there it seems an accursed place with ever more violence war and of course religious recrimination danger in capital letters
1: the frying pan into the fire i suppose well for me it wasn't like that i've always been a traveler and you know, I'd seen my own city that I was born and brought up collapsing into chaos all around me. And whatever about one's political perspective, Belfast wasn't going anywhere, but dying into an ever worse inferno of its own self-destruction. And even the best of minds from uh, whatever political opinion they came from seemed to be unable to restrain that chaos. Um, and I just thought, I want to get out of here. Not... When a place isn't going anywhere, I didn't want to stand still. Now, I have always been very sympathetic to the Palestinian cause and remain that to this day. And I'd heard so many people in uh, Belfast, in the north of Ireland where I come from, uh, you know, compare their situation with the Palestinians. And I thought, well, sure, what do you know about them? Because you've never been there. There was a whole lot of other things. I just decided to leave. I applied for two teaching posts in universities. And it was either uh, North Africa, Libya, or Beirut. And somebody said to me, why did you go, choose to go to Beirut after all? Beirut was in chaos. And I said to them, because somebody told me that the women in Beirut were gorgeous. They are stunningly beautiful. And I thought, well, if the place is falling apart, why not go and look at beautiful <laughs> women when you're doing it? Uh, and they are. They are they? This, yes, they, they have this kind of uh, ethnicity in their face and their features which traces a whole kind of Mediterranean history of Arab and Christian and and all the different influences, the Turks and everybody else that's been there. But also, Beirut's a very young city and the young people there can talk four languages effortlessly. You know, I could be sitting having a conversation with them now in English and they'll just move into French and Arabic or German or something else without the slightest bit of effort. Um, They are very, very sophisticated and intellectual. And if one studies any period of Arab history since Beirut was founded, they'll find that Beirut is a deeply, deeply cultural city and a city and a people that have informed and enriched the rest of the Arab mind, whatever it is. And that's still true of Beirut today.
0: But taking it back, never mind today, But, I mean, the the unrest there and the murders and everything else about it were hectic, surely, at that time.
1: Yeah, yeah, they were, but I thought, you know, I was immune to it. Like, I come from Belfast, I know what this is all about. And in any case, (laughs) I was Irish, so I'd got nothing to do with their problems there. I thought not only was I immune, but I thought I was invisible. And that was a big mistake. I wasn't.
0: Did the university not you in a way, you know, what were you teaching for instance?
1: Well I taught literature in the university, the university could have, the university uh, in Beirut is known as the Harvard of the Middle East and it does have that sense, it knows the importance of learning and learning is very enriching and it is, it has that old A.V. school, A.V. university sense about it. The majority of, of, of the lectures, the expatriate lectures who taught there all lived on campus, I refused. Why go to uh, visit a city which is culturally very different from your own and decide to live in an expatriate community behind guard walls? To me, it just didn't make sense. But in the end.
0: That was your mistake, perhaps? Well,
1: well, well, in a way, perhaps, but I would have got nothing out of being there by locking myself behind in, in, in campus, you know. So,
0: uh, Tell us about the actual capture.
1: Oh, yeah, I, I rented an old uh, Turkish villa in a street called Rue d'Amérique, because the French occupied the place for so long, which is only 10 minutes' walk to the university. But it was a beautiful villa. It was one of the original Ottoman villas. It still had the garden out the front with the fountain um, and all these fruit trees and flowers, and the low ceilings and the balconies, and it was just gorgeous. And I thought I'd find a real, real place of refuge here. So I got up one morning, classes started very early, I got up and I was leaving at 8 o'clock and I walked down the steps and through the garden, opened the gate, and I noticed as I was opening the gate, there was an old uh, green and cream Mercedes, I remember because it, it was hand painted, and I closed the gate behind me, put my briefcase down and locked the gate behind me and turned to walk down the street. It was a very narrow street and as I did, the Mercedes pulled across uh, to the side of the street that I was walking along, and doors opened. So I stopped assuming people wanted out, you know, and I stopped to let the people out. <laughs> I didn't know who was in there. And four men got out with Kalashnikovs and, and hand pistols and ushered me very quickly into the back seat.
0: Did they realise, did they know who they, oh, were, they, knew who they were coming for.
1: Oh, they knew who they were coming for. Well, I, I didn't know at that time. I had to suffer many interrogations for a long time, so I knew that they knew who they were coming for. They were able to tell me details about myself I didn't even know. So, you know, people should not think foolishly that um, these people are just a bunch of lunatic Arab terrorists. They were far from that. They were very informed and knew what they were doing and why they were doing it. So that's the way that happened and from, from that minute I disappeared for nearly five years.
0: Well now, just a little reminder, you are listening to the Geraldine Jameson interview on Manx Radio. And my very enthralling guest is the Irish author and Bray Root hostage, Brian Keenan, whose autobiographical books, An Evil Cradling, and I'll tell me, ma, relate the story of an ordinary boy growing up in Belfast after the war who would go on to become world famous in an extraordinary testimony of imprisonment, privation and survival. How did you cope, Brian? Because you were blindfolded, half-starved, beaten. Strangely, you went deaf for a while. And only with an American encyclopedia to while away day after day, night after night.
1: Well, <laughs> to be honest, I don't know. People ask me that all the time, and I, and I don't really know. The, the thing about the American encyclopedia, they didn't give me that. And they only gave me three or four volumes of it until uh, halfway through my fourth year. So for, for almost three years, nothing. There was no reading material, nothing at all. There was no radio, no TV, no papers, nothing, nothing, nothing but the concrete wall.
0: When did John McCarthy then become incarcerated along with you?
1: I, well, him and I have kind of disputes about this. I think it was about nine months. He doesn't reckon it was that long. But that was part of the problem. The only way to keep track of time is the call to prayer in the morning. So that told you another day had passed because you, you had nothing to tell you. you, you had no daylight or no darkness because it was constant darkness. So the only time you knew a day had passed was you'd hear the call to prayer, the Al-Fatiha, which is quite, it's it's really beautiful sound. Anyway, so that told you a day had passed. Now it's hard, it's very hard to keep count of those days after a a long while. You can keep counting for two or three weeks, but after that, you can't. So I I reckon it was about nine months approximately. I I can't be sure. Because any time I ask these guys, uh, what day is it? They always said, "Vendredi," and I said, okay, what time is it? So it was Wednesday at 10 o'clock for four and a half years for me. Uh, so uh, so the, the, there was a real difficulty about, um, you know, the long period of isolation when you're on your own in this little tiny, 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 tiny room, which was four foot by six foot, you could reach out and touch the walls without getting off your backside. And you never, you, you didn't get out of that place, they took you out to go to the toilet and brought you back five minutes later and that was, and closed the door and that was it.
0: Did they not take you out even for a small recreation to keep the muscles going?
1: They, they occasionally, for, for, only for the two weeks, first two weeks. And I think because I demanded, I said I wanted to get out and walk. Because uh, as far as I was concerned, I, I was Irish, I had no reason to be there. And I think they got perplexed once they realised that I genuinely was Irish, what they were going to do. Of course, England had this woman in charge at the time, who uh, Margaret Thatcher made a public announcement that uh, (laughs) a Saturday, which caused me a lot of problems, claiming that a British citizen had been uh, kidnapped in, in, in Lebanon, and she was going to look after it. Now, Margaret Thatcher's never been, look, been able to look off the Irish problem in 600 years. <laughs> and I'm an Irish citizen.
0: Yeah, dual that, passport. That gave me
1: a, a, well, that, that gave me a very bad time because suddenly I wasn't Irish. I was a spy because Margaret Thatcher's now
0: proved it. You know. When well, moving you on here, when John McCarthy suddenly came on the scene, I mean, he went out to try and save you, I gather, and actually ended up being captured himself.
1: Yeah, I remember... <laughs> Amongst the first things he said to me wh- when we were first put together was, uh, apart from calling me Ben, ben Gunn, because uh, I hadn't shaved for weeks and my beard was very long my hair was all over the place, he said, you know, in his awfully, awfully well spoken English accent, he said, you know, I came here to make a story about you,
0: damn stupidest thing I ever done in my life. <laughs>
1: <laughs> well, well he has a, I, I can't do his accent, he's got this very well mannered English accent.
0: You must have been overjoyed though to have the company at last. Well,
1: not really, because uh, you have to be careful. And you spend a lot of time on, on your own, in, in a little tiny room that you don't get out of. It's, and suddenly uh, you're put in a cell with somebody else. Now, I, I don't know who that somebody else is, and, but what I do know is how mad I am. And I don't want to be locked up with somebody who's as mad as I am. And I'm saying that facetiously, but, but to give a sense of... Because a lot of things happen to you and and, and I, when I was put in with this guy, I thought, if he's crazy or if he's not able to deal with this situation, I don't want to be with him. And he kind of thought the same thing, he didn't kind of want to be even though he knew who I was, he wasn't too sure that he wanted to be. It's, it's just that your psychology changes when you're subjected to long periods of isolation um, and people become... There's like a warning sign when I lifted the blindfold and saw this man sitting there. And I thought, oh no, this is going to be problematic.
0: Actually, you became great friends afterwards. I mean. As a hostage, I gather you knew if you didn't survive, your, your biggest regret was going to be not having any children because you weren't married at that mm-hmm. time. And, and somehow that was, I believe, the thing that stirred you on most. Well, I, I'm not so sure. The that survival was survival stakes even.
1: <laughs> but that came as a kind of surprise. You know, I um, had not envisaged marriage and family. It wasn't part of my long-term plan. I was going to, to work in Lebanon for a few years and I wanted to go and travel in China. And I didn't want any baggage that was going to prevent me from doing that. But suddenly I, I, I can remember quite clearly uh, getting very angry. You know, when something comes into your head, how best to explain this? People ask me, uh, do I get panic attacks? I don't. But whatever a panic attack is, this is, I, I assume it must be something like this. I was sitting in my cell and suddenly thought, really, really angry, I thought, I, I could never be a father. That's what these bastards have done to me. And I haven't done anything. I wasn't worried about anything else. And I didn't know, and it took me many weeks to uh, think that thing through with myself. Why did I, why was I suddenly feeling that? Um, and I didn't care about Because you deal with your own death uh, uh, and you, because you have to. So that was all dealt with anyway. But I was very, very surprised and taken by that. Obviously there was something buried inside myself. Uh, that surfaced
0: well just over four years of captivity april 86 to august 1990 you were finally released and you famously told journalists that you intended to make love to every woman in the world but having (laughs) just but having then decided not to leap into the arms of the first woman you met after your release you did precisely that oh
1: let the, oh God, we'd better, we better correct this for your listeners. I did not make love to every woman in the world. <laughs> uh, because, uh, I, I'll tell you a story. Shortly after I came home from my holidays, as I call them, I was in Derry, in the north of Ireland, and I was asked to come and, and speak at um, a Catholic girl's school. So I said okay, because I like Derry, I'm very fond of that part of the world, and I thought I'd go along. And it was all in sixth form in the school. And I walked in and I seen all these 18, 19-year-old sex farmers thinking, my God, what am I going to say to these three girls, you know? Uh, so they all asked the kind of questions you would ask about what did they give you to eat and what was time like, or did they read anything? I kind of like the questions you are asking me. And this is just a young lady in the front and I knew the way she looked at me and I knew what she was going to ask and I went, oh no. And she said, well, Brian, you remember you said when you were released that you were going to make love to all the women in the world? And I. Know, and I looked at her and I said, "Yes." And she said, "Well? <laughs> <laughs> to which." And I had to think, because I got really, really embarrassed, and I had to think very, very quickly. And I said, "Well, I'll tell you." A man's imagination is much bigger than his capacity. Okay. <laughs> to which the headmistress, who was a nun in full regalia, clapped from the back of the room, and I thought to myself, saying, "Well done, Brown. That's correct." And I thought to myself, "Now, how would she know? She's been a nun for half a
0: century." <laughs> well, Audrey Doyle became your wife in nineteen ninety-three. She was the physiotherapist who helped, actually, to build up your muscles again. There was just a a little faux pas that she did commit. She tied your leg to a gym bar, you know, for part of the exercise, I assume. And, of course, that had shackled connotations.
1: Yeah, I remember that. Uh, well. she took me into the gym, I I thought I was fine, uh, because what do you do all day when you've nothing to do? You exercise like hell. But she said to me, Brian, there's only much exercise you can do on an 18-inch piece of chain, so let's go down to the gym because you need to kind of see where your muscle tone is. Okay, so I went down uh, and she sat me on the floor, which didn't bother me because for about a year and a half after I came home, I didn't sit on chairs. I was so used to sitting on the floor, I just did. And then she tied this piece of elasticated band, which is about the width of my, my, my palm, around my ankle and then tied it the other end to a wall bar and I'm sitting on the floor watching this and looking up at her and watching. And my ankle's getting tied up to a wall and i thinking, what's she doing? <laughs> and I kept looking up at her and she's just nodding and I looked up and I looked, and I looked up again and she was just about to turn around to say, now what I want you to do, yeah. And I looked at her. <laughs> And my 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 wife, she busts into giggles when she gets nervous. So she busts out giggling and said, "Oh my God! Excuse me! Excuse me! Excuse me!" and run out of the room.
0: Well, your children, of course, don't think of you as a hostage. You have two lovely children, two sons, Cal and Jack, I believe.
1: I I, I they they know that bad things happen. Well, they know their father was a hostage and that bad things happened to them in the Lebanon. And they're too young for me to explain what that is. Um, And in any case, uh, well, because a movie was made about it, and I remember taking the lads down to 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 the movies to see a film about uh, called Brother Bear, a gorgeous film about a mythical uh, Inuit tale. And I spent a lot of time in Arctic Alaska, so I wanted. And when we were sitting in the foyer waiting to go in to see this movie, my eldest lad Jack said, "Daddy, there's your poster on the wall of this film that had been made, Blind Flight, about." And I thought, oh, right, OK, so I better start talking about this. But I, I decided, no, I'm not going to talk. Uh, what worried me more was uh, that my sons knew something bad had happened to me in Lebanon. They knew I was taken hostage, knew what that was. Uh, but I was anxious that they were formulating in their own kind of naive innocence that Lebanon equates with the bad p- people so Lebanon is evil and and, and they were saying kind of footage about things on TV.
0: You actually took um, a family holiday with Audrey and the boys back to to Lebanon. Well understandably (laughs) she she wasn't too keen on the choice of destination. no, No
1: she wasn't but it was really really important for me to take my two kids there so that they could stand in the place, see it, smell it, touch it, do things in it and play with other Lebanese kids and then we can talk about what happened to Daddy. Do you know what I mean? So that whatever was formulating in their, their heads about a place being intrinsically evil, which there is no such place in the world, um, and I wanted to stop that. And they, they had a great time. And that's easy for them to talk about Lebanon. It's not. They don't think of Lebanon, their father being chained
0: to a wall. They think of it in a different way. And that was important. You know? On the flight over, obviously people sort of recognised you. They must have. And how did you deal with that? I mean, you know, they said to you, you know, have you been to Beirut before and all this sort of thing?
1: I, I, I just say, yes, and I said many years ago, Lebanese are, are are very interesting people, you know, and they like conversation and they're very, very good at it. So it's it's a matter of being evasive. When were you last there? Oh, it was about 20 years ago. Really, that was at the height of the Civil War? What was that like? So yeah, it was pretty bad. And I just kind of get out of it by saying, yeah, it was bad, but I survived and I don't go into details about it. A lot of people in Lebanon would know who I am, and not least of all the leaders of Hezbollah, uh, who are very courteous to me, extremely courteous. Um,
0: are you surprised by that? No,
1: not, not, at, not at all. Uh, and I, I'm, they don't try and use me, uh, but they are very, very courteous. Um,
0: Mind you we're talking about you know death and gloom and misery here but there, there have been a few funny episodes such as you were in a taxi with John McCarthy the two of you in London and you're going along and and the taxi driver t- turned around and sort of slid the glass panel back and looked at the two of you in the back and said gentlemen wouldn't you be more comfortable traveling in the boot?
1: <laughs> I remember that occasion well we we, we both laughed uh, at the cheek of him but but then the, I You see, I get asked a lot by people all the time, religious stuff, you know, because they assume when you're locked up, you're religious, I'm not, um, but in a sense, you know, my, my only answer to them is when they ask the God question and all of this, and I said, I don't know what God is, uh, or who he is, or who she is, or who it is. All I know is they're a comedian, because if you don't have a sense of humour, you're dead and Humour is kind of energising in a very, very deep and very profound
0: way if you can lock yourself into it. Well, as you look back on your life, Brian, the huge contrast between then and now, what's your overriding feeling? Bitterness? Amazement? Why you?
1: (laughs) Oh God, why me? I, I can remember listening to an American hostage held in an Excel to me, beginning his prayers every morning with, why me, Lord? Why me? Uh, I I, Terry Anderson. I was overseeing him a couple of months ago. Um, No, that never. Well, you always ask why me, but then it's only when you stop worrying about the me that you're able to deal with with things. You know, if you put your me at the front of everything, then you can't really deal with anything because your your focus of your concern is yourself. Um. I don't know, one never knows where they're going to end up in this life. I My plans had were to go and teach uh, and then go on to Australia and from there to go travelling in China. Um, well, life's turned around differently. I, I now live in Dublin, I'm married to a beautiful woman whose company I adore. Uh, my kids are like, it's like, I, listen, here's the way to put it to you. The easiest way I can put it to you. I've been a traveller all my life. I still travel. Um, I, I've, I've written books about Alaska. I've written books about Chile. I've, I, I still write. But, you know, every traveller from time began has to find where their northern star is. And from there, they, they, they take their bearings to wherever it is they want to go. My wife's the northern star. She's that solid fixed point that sits out there in the celestial horizon. Uh, and I have two sons. Jack and carl they're my latitude and longitude, so wherever I may go in this world, and I don't know, the, the next book is an intriguing one, uh, but I don't get lost, because that's what I have,
0: and that's, I didn't expect to have that absolute assurance in life. Well, Brian Keenan, Beirut Hostage and author of An Evil Cradling, and now your latest book, I'll Tell Me Ma, it's been such a pleasure to have you join me. On the Geraldine Jameson interview this week. Thank you very much indeed. My pleasure's
1: on mine, Geraldine. Thank you very much.